Let's turn in our Bibles to the passage of Scripture which we read in the book of Acts chapter 11. We'll read again verses 25 and 6. The book of Acts chapter 11 verses 25 and 6. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. As God would help me, I'd like to concentrate on that last sentence. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I don't know if you've noticed But the Bible very, very seldom uses the word Christian. In fact, the word Christian is only in the whole of the Bible three times. On another two occasions only does the Bible speak about Christians. And one of them, you remember, is when King Agrippa was confronted uh, by Paul. And... He complained and said, do you expect to turn me into a Christian in a short while? And um, the other occasion where the word Christian is mentioned is Peter talking about the the suffering church. Uh, He says, um, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. When our Christianity gets us into trouble, we normally get embarrassed, don't we? The Bible tells us, when that happens, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of your Christianity. So the Bible seldom uses the term Christian. The term most frequently used in the Bible for a Christian is if someone is in Christ. You'll know the text, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. I think it's over 75 times it's in the Bible. And it's also used the other way. If, 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 if Christ is in you, that's not so frequent at all. And I remember thinking of that first of all and asking myself, have I to be in Christ or is Christ to be in me? The Bible speaks of both things. How can they both be true? How can I be in something and that thing be in me? And then somebody gave me the illustration. Take a bucket and put the bucket in the sea. And the sea is in the bucket. And the bucket is in the sea. And it's the same with Christ. We are to be in Christ. And Christ is to be in us. Now, here, uh, the Christians are called 
disciples. The word disciple, it's the disciples who were called Christians. The word disciple is taken from the word discipline. Do you feel you're under Christ's discipline? Now that's not a negative thing, it's actually a a positive thing. Does Christ influence the way you live? Are you under his discipline? Those under Christ's discipline were first called Christians at Antioch. I, I, I have always found that verse, or it's only a third of a verse actually, I've always found it amazing. First of all, because it was, if I've got my dates right, and I might not have, I'm open to correction, it's something like ten years after Christ ascended uh, when this took place. It was ten years before disciples were called Christians. But what's even more amazing, it's the people of Antioch that called them Christians. Was Christ ever in Antioch? He was never in Antioch, as far as I know. And it's the people of Antioch that called the disciples Christians for the first time ever. Isn't that amazing? It's important to realise that people do not give themselves nicknames. It's other people who give you a nickname. The disciples didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't object to it, of course. It was was a perfectly legitimate uh, nickname. Of course it was, as I trust will notice. But they didn't give it to themselves. The world noticed them and that's what the world nicknamed them they're Christians they were followers of this Christ we heard about we never saw him but we heard about him and these people remind us of that man that walked this earth and claimed to be God The world noticed these disciples, these followers, these learners from Jesus. The world noticed that they were different. Different from others. And they gave them this name. The world noticed that they were committed to a certain way of living. A certain lifestyle as it were. And in Acts chapter 24, you'll discover that Christians, that Christianity was initially called, it was treated as a foreign sect when it began. And it was, first of all, it was called the way. The way. Followers of Christ lived a certain way. They had a certain lifestyle. And followers of Christ were prepared to suffer for their beliefs. In fact, we read there, when those who were scattered 
because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, you remember. And as a result of that, the Christians spread away. But they were, in fact, all the disciples, apart from the disciple of love, John. All the disciples, apparently, according to secular history, uh, were martyrs. They were all killed for their faith. The world noticed that. That they were prepared to die for their beliefs. Isn't it interesting about Satan? He watches everything. And Satan, you know, cannot create anything. All he can do is imitate. And because Christ sent out prophets, he says, I'll send out false prophets. Because the way of God is through teaching, he says, I'll send out false teachers. And these Christians, they're prepared to die for their faith. I'll create people to die believing in me. I'll give them a false doctrine. The way to learn is by sound doctrine. So he says, I'll teach those under my, my spell. I'll teach them to die for me through false doctrine. Through lies. They noticed these people's lives were transformed by their commitment and zeal and faith in Christ. But the most important thing to note is why the world called the disciples Christians is they recognized, and it's a real challenge to ourselves, they recognized that their different lifestyle that their preparedness to die for living a certain way was all to do with a relationship to a person. And that person was Christ. So they called them, actually, Christians, is the real name, I suppose. Isn't that challenging? Would, it, would that world out there identify us our lifestyle with Christ's challenge isn't it in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians but I want to ask what is a true Christian how can you recognize a true Christian the devil has his imitations, his duplicates. What is a true Christian? Well, let's see what we can learn from this passage about that. The first thing, and it's the first thing I'm going to mention, the first, what, well, marks of true Christians. They received the Bible as God's infallible word. That's the first thing. You see, where did I get that? I get that from verse 1. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also 
had what? Become Christians? No. The Gentiles also received the word of God. It was Jesus himself who said, the scripture cannot be broken. Cannot. First Thessalonians 2 verse 13 tells us, we, Paul is writing to this fledgling, fledgling church of Thessalonica. You remember he wasn't very sure he was, remember, Paul was driven by persecution away from Thessalonica. Driven by persecution. And he didn't know where they're still meeting. And in chapter 3 of the first letter to them, he says, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out, are you still meeting together? And when Timothy came back with the good news, yes, they're still meeting together, his heart was so full. But you see how he describes them. Chapter 2, verse 30. We thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, it's all very well to say I believe in Jesus. Haven't you come across them? People who say, oh, I have no problem with Jesus. I I, I love Jesus. But I'm I'm not into this book. I'm not into the Bible. I'm not into reading. I I, I don't go in for that. But I love Jesus. Listen, where do you get the information about Jesus? How do you know what Jesus is like? Do you just make up an idea of Jesus? Where do you get your knowledge of Jesus? Wherever from the world. And you remember that solemn warning which he himself gave in Mark chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will I be ashamed of at last. You cannot separate Christ from his word. From his teaching. They had the conviction. That this is the word of God. I believe in the Christ. Which the Bible reveals. Not a Christ of our own imagination. And we can all make up our own mind. What we would like Christ to be. Is he the Christ that is revealed to us. In the word. Second mark given of these Christians is that in verse 18 that they genuinely repented of their sins. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted these disciples of Christ repentance that leads to life. How can you read the Bible and not be convicted Of your personal sinfulness and sinnership. How can you read the Bible and not realize you've come short of the standard God requires of us? 
But here's the thing. It's possible to be convicted of your feelings, of your sins, of your shortcomings, and your sins. It's possible to be convicted of sin and not repent of them. Some people are convicted of sin and they go into a monastery and a convent and they cut off associations with anything and everything. Some people are convicted of sin and change their religion. We are to repent of our sins. God granted to them repentance unto life. So what is repentance of sin? It's hating it. It's turning from it. And it's fighting against it. Now it is vital to note at this point Christians are not immune to sin. They're not immune to sin. We will still sin. But the question is, do we hate it? And do we fight against it? Are we opposed to it? And you say, well, I'm really confused now because how do I really know I hate it if I still fall into it? Remember, it's a falling into it. It's not a lifestyle for a Christian. But we do fall into it from time to time. The best description I've ever heard of is, can you honestly say, I have a genuine desire not to sin, and that is accompanied with a serious attempt to oppose it. Can you say you've got a genuine desire, plus you make a serious attempt not to. From time to time you'll fail, but you're opposed to it. You're opposed to it. You repent of it. And I must immediately, immediately turn to the third mark, which is the crowning, overriding mark of them all. There is no genuine repentance of sin unless there is also a turning to Christ for the remedy. Verses 17 and 21 tell us what? They were believers. 17, if they, then God gave them the, the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And that, by the way, is another biblical definition of a Christian. Believers. People who turn to Jesus. Without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God. Even though you give your body to be burnt. If you do not have faith in Christ, you're not a Christian. That's the overarching mark of the true Christian. He believes in Christ. As Christ himself categorically said, If you believe not that I am he, you will die 
in your sins. Even though you spend the rest of your life trying to be good. Even though you give your body to be burned. If you do not believe I am the Messiah sent from heaven. You will die in your sins. At what point is a human being safe from the wrath of God? In his what we call, or what some people call the journey, at what point do you cross over into the kingdom of heaven? The moment you're united to Christ, the wrath of God cannot touch you. Because the wrath of God burned at the place called Calvary upon the head of Christ. And if you are in Christ, then your sins were punished at Calvary. And the wrath of God can't touch you because it's already burned out at the place called Calvary. God is holy and he cannot punish twice. The wrath of God was taken down on the head of Christ. And if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, your sins were paid for at Calvary. Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? Are you a believer? Do you believe? I I remember when I was at the study for the ministry, I remember having to do a a course on world religions and it terrified me. I thought it would completely destroy my faith. But instead of that, it did the very opposite. It strengthened my faith in Christ. You see, it's not faith that saves. It's Christ that saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. You can have a strong faith in the wrong thing. I I like to give the illustration of, of, of a bridge. Supposing I go along a road and have to cross a river and there's two bridges there. And I'm told, put your faith in one bridge. Only one bridge will hold you up. The other bridge won't take your 17 and a half stone. So, put your faith in one of the bridges. So I look at the bridges and I study them and I say, right. I'm going for the one on the left. And I go across the bridge on the left. And halfway across, I fall into the water. That's not my faith that let me down. It's the bridge that let me down. My faith was in the wrong bridge. It's what your faith is in. And your faith has to be in Christ. And I was telling you that um, my tutor, going through this world religion, when it came to Christianity, I was very interested. And he gave a very accurate account of the crucifixion. And I, of course, wet behind the ears and green. I just assumed he was a Christian. And I said, oh, so pleased to, to hear you're a Christian. Oh, I said, I'm not a Christian. I says, wait a minute. You gave a most accurate account of the crucifixion there. Very biblical and accurate. Oh, yes, he says, I believe it took place. 
I don't believe, but I don't believe he was dying there to pay God for the sins of those who will be in heaven. Do you believe? You see, there were three people crucified that Friday afternoon. Do you believe the one in the middle was different? That he was paying God for the sins of everyone that will be in heaven. And your sins, if you're a believer. If you're a believer. If you trust in Christ. That's the difference. You can acknowledge such a thing took place. You can acknowledge such a person walked the earth as Jesus Christ and he claimed to be God. But is your faith in him? That's what's so vitally important. Well, how were they able, how did all these things take place? How were they convicted that the word was the word of God and not the word of men. What made them repent of their sins? What made them turn in faith and confidence that Christ could pardon anyone who trusts in him because he already paid for the sins of all who will be in heaven at the cross? How, how are they able to come to that? And as we read several times, the Holy Spirit indwelt them. How often we read of the Spirit working throughout that chapter. It's the Holy Spirit who did it. And some people have a wrong view of this. Oh, they, they think they think they think the Spirit twists your arm to become a believer. Twists your arm to become a Christian. That, that's the accusation made against Calvinism. That's wrong. That's not what the scriptures teach. What do the scriptures teach? That they do these... What, what the Spirit does is open our eyes and open our hearts so that we spontaneously trust Him and love Him. We don't have to have our arm twisted. We recognize our awful sinnership and sinfulness. And we say, is there any hope for a sinner like me? And then you hear about Jesus. And you say, but how can he forgive me my sins? What can somebody else do for me? Ah, he was God's representative. God sent his son Christ in our place to be punished instead of us. And God's Spirit works upon you. You recognize that? You see that? When we see Him, first of all, it's just a root out of a dry ground, but the Spirit works in your heart and it opens out to Christ. And you see him as the fairest as man ten thousand and the altogether lovely one. You see Christ as the only one that's able to save. The only one that's qualified to save. Because he's atoned for the sins of believers. And you spontaneously love Christ. You see, you, you want no one else. 
you really want him. You're not forced to him. You're drawn to him. You're like a magnet. He draws you to him. I want to go back to my children's story. Are you made? Are you made to become a Christian? Or is your heart opened to embrace Christ? To love Christ? To spontaneously take him as the saviour that's offered in the gospel. It's the work of God in our hearts to embrace him and love him. He's shown to you as the fairest of 10,000 and you love him. So now it's a pleasure to come to God's house. Now it's a delight to read his word. Now it's something to excite you. I can call on him. He's now, he died. Oh, he died. But wait, he's still alive. He's at God's right hand. And I can speak to him. I can speak to him. I can trust him. I can communicate with him. Well, I trust. You know now. That a Christian is not somebody simply who's not a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Muslim. Christian is convictions. And I trust that you see really that while we might speak of someone who's a secret Christian, really there's no such thing. Everybody else sees it. Wasn't that what happened in Antioch? The people saw it and called them Christians. There is such a thing, sadly, as a silent Christian. Sadly, there's such a thing. But are they really secret? Isn't it David who said, I believed, therefore I've spoken. Not remain silent. I believe, therefore, have I spoken. A Christian shouldn't be silent. No one's perfect. But he asks us to stand up for him. And behave in a Christian way. And I tell you, that world out there will notice. That world out there will notice. Christianity is not all in the mind. It affects the behaviour. And other people will notice. Well, we often talk about a Damascus Road experience. As if it was a classic Christian conversion. It's not really. It's a true one, that's for sure. But we don't need to have a Damascus Road experience. But I'll tell you what we do need. We need conviction regarding Christ. We need a relationship with Christ. And we need a lifestyle that honours Christ. So, now you know why in Antioch, or at least that's just some reasons I've given you, in Antioch, 
the disciples were first called Christians. May God, the Holy Spirit, make his word effectual to every one of us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you might take the things of Christ and make them ours this day. Bless your word to us, we pray, because we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll conclude our service of worship by singing from Psalm 71 in the Psalter. Psalm 71, page 310. Um, If you've got the blue book. And we'll sing verses Mark 1 to 5. Psalm 71. O Lord, my hope and confidence is placed in thee alone. Then let thy servant never be put to confusion. Down to verse 4. Free me, my God, from wicked hands, hands cruel and unjust. For thou, O Lord God, art my hope. And from my youth, my trust. Psalm 71, verses 1 to 5. O Lord, my hope and The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.